0: Hey everyone, uh, it's me, Chris Farmer, and I'm joined today with, by Mr. Gabriel Browser. Gabriel?
1: Yeah, how's it? It's two crickets in a thorn tree. That chirping does. away in the I mean this thorn tree metaphor couldn't have been better. It's like a lonely plant in the middle of a desiccated, harsh environment where the closest contact you get is a chirp. That's a Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, that sounds about right um Good. it's also it south africa's, it it's also south africa's most tangent rich podcast um, yeah. which i'm sure <laughs> will will continue to be the case today uh so uh, you know we never do that much planning for these things but uh let me just uh, kick this off with a thought that's literally a thought i had in the shower and it's not fully formed so please don't eviscerate me if it's completely stupid but let me say this so I've been thinking a lot about um, sort of the resilience of crisis, uh, resilience of societies, modern societies. I'm thinking mostly sort of uh, the very uh, modern affluent societies in particular, um, but a lot of societies as well. There doesn't seem to be an awful lot of. Uh, ability to withstand shock especially psychologically i think materially there's a little bit more of a capacity but psychologically there's not that much Mm. and my kind of general and it got me thinking you know i think that we've become and this is the the hot take phrase that i wanted to hang this on a civilization without granaries so what do i mean by granary well i'm not talking in this case about actually places where you store food uh because as as you pointed out when i raised this with you uh there is actually quite a lot of food stored around the world and uh most yeah of, a lot of people in the world are not actually that much in danger of starving. Um, there are some
1: exceptions. in fact if, if I can just make a point about that so one of the cases that I'm investigating is of alleged fraud by some of the major granaries in South Africa which are fuller than they promised they'd be, and so they are defaulting on their short contracts and their puts uh, uh, as holders of other people you know they promised to be have availability for grain to be bought and sold and moved around in paper uh, before the new harvest. And they haven't been able to do that because they've been too full. And so I've had logistical troubles. And so there's major lawsuits on foot and I'll bring you more news about that. But sort of the upshot is that I am literally right now looking out my window at about 36 concrete towers, granaries. Uh, there There are enough tons of maize in there to feed the nation for uh, quite a while, for I think we calculated like a couple of months, and that's just one tiny little dot that you can't see on the map, and that's replicated over and over again across a lot of the country. So we, are, we inter- the the one kind of granary that we do have is actual granaries. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. But I think it, it, the metaphor being like stores stores of value that you can draw on in in a in a rainy day or in a Precisely. seven-year drought.
0: Precisely. So I'm thinking of uh, actual, you know, ways that the whole world has designed. For example, the supply chain. Um, so one of the ways that companies over the last couple of years have have tried to increase efficiency is by cutting down to the absolute extent that's possible um, storage space that they use. Uh, I think it's usually called just-in-time manufacturing or just-in-time delivery. But that basically is where you you, you whatever product you're selling, uh, you make sure you have just enough of it to last until the next delivery, yeah. Uh, so that you never have
1: to keep going. Yeah, if people know the the Toyota story, and to to a lesser extent, the Hyundai story, and so on, uh, sort of manufacturing in the Far East, when it did take off, there were kind of two strands to the pitch. The one was that for the first time, uh, car manufacturers uh, were getting cameras inside their factories to show off the process, Right? So um, back in the day when you had artisanal goods, part of why you'd buy this chair or this wheel of cheese from this guy and not from that guy, is he'd show you how he makes it. He wouldn't just be showing off the finished product, he'd be showing off the process. And that kind of went away with a lot of automation. If you look at the industrial revolution in Europe, and then the same thing was replicated everywhere that it went, Uh, you've got very sooty, very dirty uh, factory environments that are really gross. And you kind of want to keep the final product as far apart in people's minds from the procedure to make it as possible. And the and the great metaphor there is, like, you don't want to see a sausage factory. You just yes. want to see the sausage at the end of it. Um, but the the script scriptures flipped. And they were like, you know, let's look at a Toyota factory. It's so clean. It's so nice. Our staff are so buzzed. They're so eager to, like, make the nicest. Yeah, it's not, it's not small
0: children in sort of slave conditions manufacturing things with their tiny hands.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of pride, right? We we we're, we're super we're super proud of our product, and we're super proud of of how clean our space is, and that became a selling point. But uh, but the sort of less uh, marketable, but perhaps more profound, uh, uh, cost efficiency difference maker was the, as you say, uh, the manufacturing efficiencies where uh, you've got just in time manufacturing. So the you 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 you're essentially you're essentially assembling a lot of different parts at the final factory and you and you're not sitting with a lot of stock and that and that really does boost efficiency
0: yeah um and it is it is in a lot of ways good for companies good for growth um but it's sort of built on the assumption that there's not going to be a calamity and this is really what i'm getting at is that wherever you look through sort of modern societies um and south africa falls under some of these but not under all of them Um, but i'm thinking also of for example government debt Government data is a very good example of, uh, you know, we can borrow now because it's fine. Um, We will, you know, we'll be able to make it up in the future. It's not a big deal.
1: Yeah, we'll Uh, borrow to stimulate growth and then that growth will get revenues, tax revenues in the future that we can use to pay it back. And it's going to be a smooth Uh, Totally managed, South Africa.
0: South Africa, of course, is an example of how this is really dangerous because we got ourselves, we borrowed and we spent and we borrowed and we spent until we were starting to get really into a financial hole. And then this thing hit and now, you know, we're looking at an apocalypse of government finance in many ways. It's not pretty. Um, Yeah, it's not pretty at all. Um, And, you know, we also... uh, Uh, The U.S., for example, um, uh, social welfare programs like Social Security and stuff, they've kind of been increased and people don't have children. Uh, So these things have kind of now started to become completely unaffordable and some of them are going to start running out of money in the next, well, it's probably been sped up a bit um, because the U.S. has also borrowed a huge Mm. amount of money. But in the next 10 to 20 years, some of these programs are going to start going bust and people uh, who may have made financial planning around them are going to be Uh, cut a bit short um there's also sort of a uh, yeah so i I think that we're we're stuck in a kind of cultural moment uh not everywhere obviously but where the general zeitgeist of society is to kind of spend for the future and not plan and that's because we're really uh we, we, we live in this little bubble of history where calamity and disaster is very is relatively rare, right? This is, in many ways, there's obviously some exceptions, but in many ways, the most prosperous time in human history, at least until 2020.
1: Yeah, uh, most prosperous, most peaceful, and least pathogenic.
0: Exactly. Um, so one of the good examples of this is. Uh, so I've been reading a bit about uh, you know an economist. I'm quite interested in a guy called Lyman Stone. I think I've talked about him before. Anyway, he brought to my attention a really interesting thing which is that uh the u.s used to have centralized quarantine now he makes a whole argument for this but let's not get into that now but uh there used to be i think 60 centralized quarantine sites across the u.s where in the case of some sort of infectious disease like uh, ebola or flu or something uh, you can take the sick people and put them in that facility and then kind of look after them, and keep them away from the healthy population.
1: Right. You take the sick people and the people that they've been around, people that aren't yes. necessarily sick contact with. Yeah. Exactly. So you can kind of ship off a whole village or whatever.
0: Exactly. Or rather, than, rather than sending them home to self-isolate the government or sort of drags them off to a thing. Obviously, there's reasons why people are uncomfortable with this. Uh, but there used to be something like 60 to 80 sites across the U.S. for this purpose. And in the 70s, they began closing them down. And the reason was that is that, and this is from the Center for Disease Control in the US's website. Yeah. we believed that infectious diseases were a thing of the past.
1: Dude, that is literally the quote.
0: <laughs> and um, uh, now, now Bush uh, W uh, George W. Bush opened up a couple a couple of them again because Baby he read a book on the the 1918 uh, flu, and it freaked him out, and so he kind of tried to kick off some pandemic preparation, which actually created this. Scary- I love.
1: Yeah, I love how that guy just shoots from the pants. He's like, <laughs> "I was I was back in the ranch, and I I read me a book about 1918, and I wonder, could something like that happen again? Well, maybe it could now. So let's just reopen some some quarantine centers now, and it's all going to be way better. Uh, I and the scientists so- were like, "No, it'll never happen again." And He's like, "No, I got a gut feeling. I got a feeling in my gut."
0: T- to, be fair, to be fair, he probably saw, um, you know, he probably heard, spoke to some scientists, because this was, you know, obviously during his presidency was a SARS outbreak. Uh, so he, he it, saw this. Let's, uh,
1: not, let's not overwhelm, look, I know we have different views on Baby Bush, but that guy spoke to scientists and about, like, testing uh, eggs that had been taken out of a woman and sperm and sort of doing just random tests in a test tube. And he was like, no, that's real life. I don't care what nobody say. Every, every time the DNA of a sperm and an egg cell connects, it's, it makes something unique like a snowflake. And so he vetoed as a lame duck uh, in vitro. Uh,
0: yeah, no, no the, the stem cell issue that was quite early on in his presidency. Um, anyway, we, we're getting distracted. My point is that, uh, you know, a country like the U.S., which, of course, has this huge pull on the whole planet uh, and our our politics and our culture, um, is in a a world where it really didn't think that anything disastrous could happen. Now, COVID has hit, and COVID is a genuine disaster uh, of a proportion that we haven't seen for quite a while, Um, at least, I would say, possibly since the Second World War. Um, And we've really now been, I think starting to see some of the gaps uh in our society in our politics um as we noted in the in one of our previous episodes um this has not made people smarter you know you normally uh pandemics and stuff have uh you know focused the mind and force people to kind of pull together to do certain things but a lot of our political uh, characters have just retreated into what they knew before they've just doubled down they've said oh well Um, I know I used to always talk about, for example, the dangers, the imminent danger of climate change. But all that COVID shows is that the imminent danger of climate change is far greater than we ever imagined.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it's such a weird
0: angle. Or you sort of get libertarians who, you know, have always been skeptical of the state. But now they're, uh, you know, tripling, quadrupling down. And it doesn't matter what country they live in. They're all about to be dragged off to FEMA camps and shot. Um, Which in some countries is possibly true, but in most countries is probably not. Uh, So, so basically, my idea is that because we've lost our, because we don't have a sense of history um, in a lot of places. I know, I don't know what if there's any equivalent stat for the for South Africa, but in the U.S., for example, um, something like only thirty percent of people have anything approaching a reasonable uh, idea of U.S. history. Um, You know, even just the basic outline about 70% of the population has not the faintest idea of where the country comes from or what life was like in the past. Yeah. Um, I think that we are vulnerable to something maybe worse than than COVID. So COVID is, is a disaster, of course, but it, it's still not on the scale of, of great disasters across history. It's not even that close to some of the worst ones. Um, and I fear that unless we start to take uh, you know, things like saving, things like uh, caution, more seriously um, that societies are going to be vulnerable to uh, even greater disruption in the future. So tell me, am I mad? Am I crazy?
1: Yeah. In some ways, I suppose, I don't know. I don't know what to make of your thesis. Um, I suppose I want to pass it apart. So if I think about the theory of no granaries at the level of, Uh, the material economy, the property markets, the free markets, then I'm not so sure I'm not sure that I buy into it entirely. Like, yes, there's a lot of uh, manufacturing where they just uh, don't keep much stock. Uh, But it's not clear to me that that is an insurmountable problem. If you look at VW, for example, Which owns, you know, a bunch of luxury brands and makes sort of cars for ordinary mortals as well uh, around the world. They're looking at China. They're seeing a V-shaped recovery. They're seeing China. They're seeing demand for their cars, especially their kind of regular uh, entry-level sedans, huge in April. And they think that part of it is that people are kind of more interested in having an option going forward that doesn't force them to use public transport. Uh, and, uh, but generally, the capacity to buy, the orders, the capacity to produce, if you look at China's PMI, Purchasing Managing Index, it's fuck, it, it's gone right back through uh, the roof. Uh, China's looking very much at a V-shaped recovery. Uh, VW is also looking at uh, Northern European countries, the Nordic countries, the Germany uh, the netherlands and they and they're seeing a v-shaped recovery there as well v-shaped just means you know you go down you hit you you, you hit some kind of bottom and you bounce back up and but the bottom's not cars that long.
0: be one of the things that we really would expect people uh, to see kind of bounce up because it's like a you know it's a thing people save up for um it's a thing that there's a kind of like
1: a constant demand for um yeah but it's a very the supply chain what i'm trying to say is the supply chain is very complex with cars because any given car has tens of thousands of parts and most in many of them are made in different countries and they weren't complaining about like okay we're getting demand back we're not able to supply it they were like no no no, this is great we're getting demand back we're going to supply it uh it's back to business and car manufacturing is the kind of thing that economic nationalists focus on because the externalities are so positive if you if your car manufacturing sector is regrowing it's a it's a it's not a decisive but it's a very strong indicator that lots of other things are going to regrow. But then they looked at South European countries uh, and they predicted a bathtub recovery so kind of flat you know <laughs> s- slopes down and then it like slides along the grimy bottom of the bathtub for a while a few years and then it comes back up
0: but those economies have been unhealthy for quite a long time yeah um, Spain
1: so I don't think this is a supply chain answer. management issue i think I think that this is i think that the I think that you were right to say to to take the metaphor from from like these physical granaries, away from farming, away from uh, manufacturing even maybe, and to kind of political esteem economy silos. Yeah, so, that's really
0: where I think that we, we are in most a most vulnerable position. Um,
1: we I don't think, have you
0: know, yeah, I think capitalism yeah, has an enormous ability to adapt and respond to things. I mean, I think that if we were under, you know, some kind of lockdown enforced forever, uh, you know, for the next ten yeah. years. Uh, the, the capitalist economy would probably pretty efficiently adapt to it within the course of a few years.
1: Yeah, it'll find its way. And, and if we have the restrictions for a couple of months and then you lift them, it'll find its way too. And, you know, always take note that Sweden has been the most capitalist free market uh, responder to this thing. And that'll probably do okay. Um, so... In terms of the in terms of the esteem economy, you know, the reserves are very low. The reserves that matter are, are trust in experts, and that takes a long time to build up.
0: And trust in institutions more broadly, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So experts, experts as like the faces of the institutions that that, that uh refine and sift the knowledge that they then communicate. And in America, you can see this because you had this like this terrible this terrible crisis of trust, right? Where you had the New York Times predicting the day before the twenty sixteen election that Trump had a one percent chance of winning. So that's not like their normative claim: should he win or should he not win? It's like their descriptive claim: like does he have a chance or not? And and then he wins. And they never really come to terms with that. And the New York Times is like uh, the most, uh, it has the greatest legacy of any American publication. Uh, and it already was losing trust by then. Subsequently, you look at its trust figures, they've gone down. And it stands for many other publications and many institutions uh, that kind of had their esteem team loci Concentrated, at, which is to say that they shared a sense of what the enemy is, and they shared a sense of like, if you diss the enemy, then you get liked by us, and if you say anything nice about the enemy, then we get you get alienated by us. And on the on the on the counter side, you've you've had these like tea party guys who've been pretty crazy, man, for a while. Um, definitely some 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 weird theories, not all of them, but but like with the New York Times, some like demonstrably false claims which have given people who I think sort of looked at the shortcomings of the New York Times and company and hoped for an alternative sort of grassroots upgrowth and and found disappointment there. That's not to say, like, I read the National Review, for example, uh, which is a pretty centrist, slightly center-right American publication, which... Uh, it's very disparaging of a lot of Trump's shenanigans and a lot of the Tea Party shortcomings, but at the same time, is very disparaging of a lot of what goes on on the far left. Yeah, and, it's actually. And an it's played, but but who reads the National Review, right? It's like it's like the organisations that have tried to bet on trust have not had the time to build it up, and so in a lot of societies, where you, when you don't have trust, it's not to say that nothing wins out. There is is something else that takes its place. And and, and I do think newspapers are an interesting way to think about this. Here's here's a thought experiment that I was discussing with my fiancé earlier this week. Imagine uh, about how competition might work, right? So, uh, you know, you've got this worry that you don't want fake news to be spread. And until the Internet, the worry was very much... Um, that you'd have one voice who'd get control over the the, the very high barriers to entry for, for, for spreading your platform across the nation. Uh, remember that the precondition for esteem is attention. And the radio and the television and the print media were the only real ways to get massive attention across a country, right? And they're very expensive to run. So there's high barriers to entry, and your worry is that a despot or an autocrat or a dictator is going to get control over all the printing presses, over all the radio stations, over all the television stations. And one voice is going to drown out the many, and you're going to have the problem of despotism. With the Internet came the new problem of, like, the many voices being able to drown out the one voice of the expert. You've got one guy who's actually looked at the numbers. You've got all one institution, one team of people. And they really know what's going on, and, and, and they should be amplified, and their, and their facts should be spread throughout societies so that people can think about them. But uh, through the internet, like, anyone can make their voice heard, and so you've got this problem of uh, – you've got the opposite problem, not of, uh, of autocracy, but of anarchy. And anarchy is not great, eh? Anarchy is really, really bad, um, and and so the worry there, as expressed by Philip Pettit, who wrote The Economy of Esteem, uh, is that the Internet age, that the, the the doctrine of freedom of speech made sense in the technological environment that it was developed in, where the major threat was that one voice would drown out the many. So you say, no, 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 there's nothing to stop people from saying their piece. Uh but now that it's so much easier for everyone to say the piece, you worry about the many voices drowning out the one reasonable one. And I think a way to think about this. So I think. So I don't share Philip Pettit's pessimism. I think that, uh, or, no, I've, or or. I've actually or, read or something Ferguson. quite
0: interesting. I've I've read yeah. something quite interesting today about this, which is that um, because of this heightened fear of fake news, actually. Um, in the US, there seems to be some early signs, and I'm not sure what metrics they use to uh, look at this, um, but that ordinary uh, ordinary people are being very suspicious and publicly fact checking their friends and family who maybe spread interesting, you know, things that are not so factually correct or maybe a bit wild, you know, like for example, the that 5G causes COVID. Obviously it's not a, it's not Dude, a perfect system. It's
1: it's great. No, no, no. This is the ultimate system. Who guards the guardians? The ultimate fact-checkers are you, Nicholas Lorimer, and me, and Precisely. each one of our listeners independently. And sometimes I get emails from our listeners saying, hey, I think you made a mistake there. I love that. That is how civil society has to work. But it's the, first, it's, the first, it's the basic precondition, is that people are the fact-checkers. And, and, and but here's the problem. For a time, having people be the fact-checkers can misfire, and here's how it goes. Imagine that there were only two newspapers in a country. One of those newspapers dedicates 20% of its resources to establishing the facts in a fair and balanced way and 80% of its resources to to communicating its information in a catchy way. The other one dedicates 80% of its resources to being serious and factual and only 20% of its resources to marketing and being catchy. Now, as long as you believe that humans know how to be catchy. As long as you believe that the more resources you dedicate towards trying to make something a great meme, the likelier you are to actually go viral. Uh, As long as you believe that's true. Just to say, some philosophers and some economists think that advertising is just luck. It doesn't really work. But if you think advertising really works, which I do, yeah, I think common sense says it really works, Um, then... The company, the newspaper that's spending 80% of its resources on being catchy is going to outperform the one that's spending 80% of its resources on being factual. But that's only in the short run. What happens in the mid-run is that that company that was just trying to be fashionable is going to get cut short. And this is exactly what Warren Buffett's position was when he invested in the Washington Post uh, before the Pentagon Papers, before Watergate, when Catherine Graham and her husband – Uh, whose name escapes me right now, Uh, were we're in charge of that august publication. He said, you guys have got a small readership relative to other companies. You guys are not spending your money on being catchy. You're spending your money on finding the facts. And I am a long-term investor. And in the short run, you guys are going to be outperformed by all the guys just trying to sound cool. But in the long run, you guys are going to figure you're going to be right when everyone else is wrong and no one is going to forget that. And guess what? 40 years, 50 years after Pentagon Papers and Watergate, still, the Washington Post gets readers because no one has forgotten that they got it right on those groundbreaking stories when everyone else had it wrong. Except for the New York Times and the Pentagon Papers case. So, in the mid-run, competition should... Uh, get you to a point where the the institutions and the companies and the, and the individuals that have dedicated more of their energy to being right than to being hip are going to be the most trusted. That's how it should work in the mid and the long run. The problem is when you have a sudden shock, you're not in the middle of the long run, right? You're in that like ruxious part of the wave where the where the hipsters are getting ahead and the faxters are still clawing at opportunities to prove them wrong in a, in a more dry and robust way. And this crisis, the COVID crisis came at a time when that midterm effect had not yet taken bite. And so in that sense, I see a, 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 like an empty granary, the kind of trust that you give to an institution that's been a little bit more boring, a little bit more serious, but has been right when everyone else is wrong. That's like a building, that builds up a reservoir, and then if you've still got good people there, then they're gonna they're gonna get the they're gonna get the airwaves, they're gonna get the amplification, they're gonna go viral, even if they do put their tweet in the most like unhip way. But but those granaries were empty because the 2016 complete evisceration of trust in America before on top of the uh the Occupy Wall Street movement in 2011 on top of uh, the kind of crisis of faith in the American institutions after they went to war in Iraq on the pretext of, like, weapons of mass destruction that didn't turn out to be there. You know, it's just like America's been screwed very, very badly by failures of, of trust. And the institutions are still competing to find that trust, and so we've got no grainings. And I do think that country, many countries around the world are feel the effects of the distribution of esteem in America acutely, and i think that if you tell the story in a south african context it's even worse because here we had a party that was led by mandela that had i mean nelson mandela had more trust that institution that he was in charge of because of him and a few others who made pragmatic decisions and expressed a humanity of understanding and a forgiveness and of 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 turning their back against revanchism one of i mean he nelson mandela just never forget uh Nelson Mandela was the third person to get uh, uh the distinguished honor the highest distinguished honor that Harvard has to give. The only other two were George Washington the founder of the American Republic and uh was it George it's either George Washington or Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill. You know he's like in the triumvirate of like greatest leaders in the world. The ANSI had such huge trust and Yet it disappointed the country like woefully, woefully, woefully demonstrably to an extent that like the most ANC supporters our polls show actually think the ANC is doing a terrible job. They're just still voting for the ANC because they kind of still have that momentum of trust.
0: I can't remember the exact figure, but I remember uh, from one of um, the polls we did something like at least a fifth of of people who are active ANC supporters and voters and members (laughs) think that the party is corrupt
1: yeah so it's really it's really not great but so but so so i think when you have a low trust environment and then you have a crisis yeah then you don't have this granary of trust to draw your reserves from to like be like right now it really matters that the right stories get out rather than the silly memes and uh and and so we've got to rely on you sort of taking this seriously. And and it just hasn't been there. And that's why we've had such an unserious response. More and more, the thing that plagues me is how silly the response has been. Like in South Africa, we're stuck in this. Here's the thing I've been working on a week. We, we seem to be stuck in this paradigm that hard lockdown equals fewer cases of COVID spreading. Soft lockdown equals more cases of COVID spreading. But soft lockdown equals better for the economy. Hard lockdown equals worse for the economy. So then you've got this terrible dichotomy. Uh, do you want to have a softer lockdown? It's better for the economy, but more people are going to die. Or do you want a harder lockdown? Less people are going to die of COVID, but it's worse for the economy. But so I've been false. looking at the data, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm trying to go to war with Max Price, former vice chancellor of the UCT, who I think has just completely misled. A perfidious Price misled the nation by pretending that we flattened the curve when we haven't. Because why? Because you notice when you look at the polls, you notice when you listen to radio, where people call in, or you look at the social media, the amateur media, on uh, like Facebook. South Africans are hugely disgruntled and deeply frustrated with the lockdown. They want it to go away. But very few people want to say, you know, the lockdown has failed, but we just, still make it a go away because it's worth it to let people die in order to let the economy thrive and for people to have their person's freedoms back so you've got guys sweeping in like max Price saying, no we've beaten the virus we've flattened the curve therefore you can reduce the virus Um, we haven't flattened the curve what's it that that the kid's saying big if true (laughs) yeah dude there's no evidence that we flatten the curve the paradigm that we have to switch from is like hard lockdown saves lives, soft lockdown risks lives, to stupid lockdown kills people, smart lockdown saves people. And, and, let, let's, and let's find me that. someone outside. Like it's very hard to find anyone who's writing about the virus that way, or talking about, or talking about the management of the virus that way. It's like we just we just stuck in the in like the we just stuck in this very silly place where we what? where we spiteful and you know we don't want e-commerce to be allowed because what about oh, the yeah, other that was
0: that was that was definitely one of the dumbest things our government has done ever <laughs>
1: it's plain dumb and and dude it's not just the government people are dumb 200 schools have been looted in this country
0: how many how many are looted in a normal time span though that's the real thing you have to compare it to um uh, one of the things I wanted to, to mention is... is no, but, dude, money. what is
1: more dumb than
0: looting a school? <laughs> yes, that is dumb. Uh, I wanted to mention something that uh, uh, about, about the silly way that the debate has evolved. So, um, there's an argument that says that... Uh, and it's an argument that we both agree with and you've made a lot, uh, which is that um, poverty, lockdown, collapsing economy does also kill people. Uh, yeah. And, in fact, possibly more people than the virus. But, of course... Uh, The other side of that is also true, which is that uh, out of control disease hurts economy, um, yes, and frightens people. So there's no simple one, you know. There's no simple balancing of this. It's got so many different angles to it. What's interesting, uh, we talked about Sweden earlier and how they've done a far more open, free markety way for this uh, to deal with this. Their economy is still contracting by six percent. (laughs) Yeah, it's not like they were completely. Uh, freed from all the negative effects, of this. there is this is this is why I think that resilience in a society and a sort of granary institutional granary is so important. Um, is that yeah, there is because they're not in,
1: about to vote out the opposition party in Sweden is not saying, "Oh, look, the economy has reduced by six percent. Like these guys haven't done it right, or someone died of COVID. These guys haven't done it right." They're yeah. not taking the most reductive, stupid view to try and turn it into a cudgel to bash their opponents' heads in. They are seriously trying to think about the way to deal with this. Yeah. And, it, and, and it's just a million miles from where we are. And we are in
0: a situation where no matter what we do, uh, there is no good option in the sense that there's no option with no s- serious negatives. Um, and there is so also… So,
1: here's Okay. Yeah. You. Sorry, finish your sentence. I've got my thesis of the deepest kind of granary there is in a society.
0: Oh, yeah, no, no, I want to hear this. Um, oh, no, I've completely lost my train of thought. Go ahead, tell us about the
1: greatest granary. <laughs> okay, how has COVID-19 divided people? There are some people who always want to look at political questions in the terms of missed opportunities. Yeah. And they can be ultra right-wingers. I have been listening to so many of these guys at Flippin' drives me mad. They're like, every time they see the government doing anything, especially when it comes to central banks, they're like, oh, there's such a missed opportunity. We could just, like, let go of the currency and go Bitcoin crazy, and it'll all be fine. And they never want to look at the costs. And then there's left-wingers who's like, you know, we could just take the farms and give them to people. That'd be great. Well, well the or, hot new one
0: now is that the destruction of the economy under COVID is, will allow us to rebuild a carbon-neutral economy. Uh, that's that's been kicked yeah. around in some far left circles.
1: So, on the one hand, you've got people who only see missed opportunities. They're like, you can do this. It's all between good and better. And on the other hand, you've got people who see the difference between bad and worse. Now, let me just elaborate this. I think that all people engage both mo- both modes of sort of thought from time to time. So. Uh, you know, the first time I noticed this, I was like seven years old. I was like, mom, how come it's such a simple example that like a seven year old can get it? And I did. Mom, how come at the grocery store there's low fat milk and then there's full cream milk? How come there's never advertised like full fat milk? This milk will make you fat or like very uncreamy milk, watery diarrhea milk. This milk does not taste nice. Yeah, but it instead, looks a little bit like milk.
0: Instead, we get uh, skim milk, which is the great, yeah. greatest euphemism.
1: <laughs> so, so, and advertising is all about that. It's all about good or better. It's win-win. It's all good. There's no There's no cost. It's either you have low fat, that's great, or you have full cream, that's great. And that is a way, that's a mode of thought that we all engage on when we're on dates, that we all engage on when we're at like a family picnic and we're trying to make the best of it. There's no sort of like, it's just rude. It's just a mood kill to say, no, I don't like that because it's, like, making me fat. Or, no, I don't like that because it's, like, not tasty. It's just like you, you just make the best of it, you know. But then there's also a frame of thought where every choice is bad. There is no such thing as a good choice because every choice comes at a cost. And the question is finding what's the least bad. And you can yeah. tell that America has completely lost touch with reality by the fact that, when people started saying, here's how you need to think about the 2016 election. It's a choice between bad and worse. Neither of the candidates are good. And you've got to figure out which is the lesser of two evils. People shot back by saying that somehow that's sexist or somehow that's like a mis- misogynist thing to say. It's not a misogynist thing to say. It's a, fr- it's, it's a fundamental way of thinking about opportunity cost. And anyone who's ever run a business will say there's no such thing as a good choice. There's just like what's the least worst way to get in the way of this business growing? And anyone who's ever decided between, you know, when I was eighteen, when you were eighteen, we had to think about what universities do we want to go to. There's no such thing as the perfect university. Every university has drawbacks. Mm. You you went to a university who had terrible drawbacks because, like a lot of the professors, are Marxists, uh, with no sense of self-reflection. Well, I probably, went to.
0: I probably uh, got really lucky, but in fact, UCT rejected me, and I shudder to think what horrors. I w- I would have been enacted on me if I'd gone to UCT.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think you would have had a different life, man. And you and and staying at UCT, staying with your parents, it helped you to like go from vets to to finding a political purpose, to becoming a ward counsellor for emerentia, and from there like to serving people in a seriously depressing way, but an ennobling way, and from there to joining the most esteemed Institute of Race Relations. And for me, I we've come to the same place. My journey was to go to the most highly ranked undergraduate university in the world. Oh, that's amazing. There were costs. I missed South Africa. I felt completely dislocated from my family, from my friends, from a sense of normalcy. And in some ways, I went completely mad as a result. It was very well, learned, costly business going there.
0: I mean, from, from hanging up with you, one of the things I've learned is how awful um, elite global culture can be. The sort of way that people inter- interact with each other at uh, at that very sort of high level. And it's something that I wouldn't enjoy. Um, and I don't just say that because I'm bitter about not being able to go to Princeton, but because that sort of clawing, hyper-competitive, uber-fashionable uh, yeah. miasma that seems to permeate the places is not exactly very
1: attractive. It's definitely got drawbacks. And my point is that a serious reflection on life means There are always drawbacks. Any moment that you have lunch, you are sacrificing your ability to have a a smaller lunch and give some of that money to save someone else. And it is a hard thing to think about. And Shakespeare had, I think it was Shakespeare, had the great line that if you were to feel everyone's suffering around the world equally, it would be as painful as listening to the grass grow. It would complete. It would be a cacophony that would drown your mind's ability to make rational choices.
0: No so we have to, to not
1: always engage position. in that frame of thinking. Sorry.
0: No one is is meant to bear the weight the weight of the entire world on their own shoulders.
1: No. So both frames of reference have problems. Always just seeing it as a choice between good and good and better, just a missed opportunity if you didn't do better, and always seeing a choice between it's like there's it's all a bad option, and how do we choose the least bad option? Both of those are imperfect, incomplete ways of looking at the world. But sophisticated people, civilized people, people who've been like confronted the r- reality of politics know how to engage the opportunity cost way of looking at things. Know how to say, look, people are dying no matter what. How do we get the least number of people to die? And... It's that way of thinking. That is a granary. That is the deepest granary. The seriousness of like, the seriousness of war thinking, the seriousness of how you would think if you were on a ship and four of your families were tossed over and you only had two life buoys to throw out to them. Like that serious way of thinking, that's a muscle that you have to exercise to be able to engage it with alacrity and with intelligence. And people and nations that have, shattered their ability to engage have, have 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 left that muscle uh unused have uh, have found themselves i think on the wrong end of this covid crisis
0: no for sure i think i think that um uh like the american healthcare debate is actually very haunted by this is that there's sort of this um you know whenever there's a change in policy people say oh but you know this will kill x many people um but but actually there there's something more going on here. You do kind of often have to look at the bigger picture because whenever you exercise power, you kill people
1: whenever uh, you exercise landscape. power, you kill people it is yeah. this is this is where Socrates began. this is where Hobbes began. this is where Machiavelli began. This is where Locke began. The serious political thinkers of history, Confucius they start with that thought and they say you this is to to think about politics is to is to move out of a space of happiness it is depressing it's fundamentally depressing if you're not depressed not thinking about politics properly
0: it's it's the use of 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 it's the use of where to use our limited uh blood and treasure yeah and there's
1: always nastiness involved and freud has the best insights into this freud says the childish the thing that all the problem that all children have is that they kind of want to alienate the bad and associate themselves with the good, and it's, and they just want to live in this world of good and better and better and best. And he says that the precondition of maturity, like, obviously, as a Jewish person, uh, maybe it involves a bad mitzvah as a ritual. As a South African, we've got the 21st birthday as a ritual. Zulus have the stick fighting as a ritual. But the thing that that's supposed to teach you is that there is no total victory, that there is always a cost that it is always suffering that there's always something that you wish wasn't like that even though this is the best decision you can come up with and that is that is what adulthood means adulthood yeah. means as Freud says entering the depressive position where realizing that it's a choice between bad and worse does not turn your brain off that's what makes your brain the most penetrating that's what makes your intelligence the most curious. That's what makes you hunger for the best possible solution, instead of just turning it off and being like, "Well, those guys are saying this, and that's going to mean yeah. this many people die, and so we don't <laughs> want to think about it anymore because that's terrible."
0: <laughs> no, I think I think that's very well said. Um, but let's move on to one other thing. I think before we go, uh, now that we've thoroughly depressed our audience and uh, laid bare no, life, but a series of
1: struggles. you must, you must <laughs> if you want to be with the crickets in the thorn trees, you must know. Life is a, a series of miseries, uh, tangential well, to let, which yeah, emerge moments like of lucidity and joy that me, are a pure luxury.
0: Let, let me let me put it like this: one of the worst phrases to disappear from our collective culture was, "Well, tough. That's just how life is." And actually, oh. <laughs> that's that's something that we really need to bring back. Um, or life's not fair. Uh, uh, to put it another way
1: you're bringing me back to high school when I was in high school I was going over my notes when I was in high school the most common phrase we used was life sucks and then you die
0: (laughs) deal with it kids anyway on that note uh, we've got about just under fifteen minutes (laughs) uh, we were
1: so much wiser when we were younger Nick we were much wiser No, the no, whole, the, no. our whole civilization was wiser. South Africa was so much wiser in the '90s than it is today.
0: Well, it's, it's such probably a, because it had it had a closer up brush with calamity, perhaps, which was what focused its mind a bit. Um, but but let me change the damn topic. <laughs> go ahead. So 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 uh, we've got we've got three options here. We can talk about the uh, E News Channel Africa anchors who were chopped. We can talk about France Crenier's new book. To which we are both in the acknowledgements, uh, so it's basically really just self self promotion. Um, or we can talk about Victory in Europe Day. Which would you prefer? I'm leaving it up to you. This is a live on air decision.
1: Um, okay, I just want to I, I don't want to talk about the 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 ENCN because I just want to say their apology was embarrassing, but their firing yeah. is a scandal that this country cannot overlook. It's the biggest news story of the week. Uh, if you haven't looked at the video of what they originally said, it was very mild-mannered kind of criticism of and Lemini Zuma and the claim that Ramaphosa had lost some of his power. And then they said they apologized unreservedly and then they were fired. And if you think that South Africa has got a free press, Jesus, you, you have to be no. serious. Free press means, yes, none, none of the journalists that we know of have been assassinated or sent to jail. But do we have free thinking press? That's what you really want to know, not, no. and uh, and it's no. also
0: a reminder of how the ANC's National Democratic Revolution in in, in uh, infiltrates rather uh, all of society's institutions, such as such as media houses. Um, all right, so can are we I say about we'll the book?
1: One more thing about that in Russia, you know, after um, what was her name? Uh, anyway, after a couple of journalists were assassinated. I spoke to Jonas in Russia and I was like, how do you feel about this? Why? They only assassinated like a couple. Uh, (laughs) Is this really enough to change the vibe? And they said, Gavrila, think about it. Once you know you can be killed, no consequences for the killers. It only takes one. It's called, what's the English word? Example. You make example. (laughs)
0: Uh, so we talk about the book or victory in Europe.
1: Okay, the book is great. Everyone should read it. Let's talk about yeah. it properly next week. Let's talk about VE.
0: So, seventh uh, of May, nineteen forty-five, is the day that German armed forces uh, officially surrendered. Interestingly, though, the uh, the German armies on the Channel Islands, um, I didn't actually know this until quite recently. I didn't surrender until a day later so they were like the last bit of nazi germany's control was actually the channel islands
1: strangely enough there's a great irony there
0: yeah um it's it's quite a it's quite a momentous thing because uh and and i'd recommend at this stage i'm gonna self self plug here um go to the daily friend look at my criminally underread this week in history which is a weekly feature i'm going to be doing where where i just list some kind of interesting things Um, that have happened in history and like a youtube video about each of them Um, and in that article is a link to this phenomenal youtube video which just shows you know it visualizes the cost in human lives of the second world war Um, and it's one of the best pieces of of visual sort of narrative telling or storytelling or facts that you'll that you'll ever see
1: yeah it really is it's like it's like the darkest hour uh accepting somehow even more harrowing it's just it's just oh god it's it's ghostly if you you don't believe in ancestors watch that and you will uh jews and gentiles uh japs and yanks uh chinese and russians like yes just just try and get a try and get a sense of the scale and if you think that you're not going to find anything out there that you don't already know, ask yourself how many people died in the war overall? How many people died in Stalingrad? How many people died yeah. uh, throwing, throwing their lives at defeating the Nazis?
0: No, it's it's, it's, a, it's a good watch, a very sobering watch. It does leave you with a sort of feeling in it. Um, but I guess that one of the takeaways we can do to kind of relate back to what we were just saying is, um, is VE Day is a little bit of a reminder of how, you know, sort of the struggle for goodness is never really over. So the Nazi regime was defeated. Um, Everyone in the world pretty much celebrated. Uh, It was this great triumph of liberalism and democracy over, uh, you know, the evils of this uh, eugenics, violent, autocratic, imperialist nation. And yet it also wasn't. Because what had just happened was the whole of Eastern Europe had been handed over to the Soviet armies uh, who would not leave for many, many months to come. Um, And so for years, for years, for years, for for decades Decades. until the until the collapse of the, you know, of the Soviet Union, pretty much, uh, or at least the end of the Cold War. So the, the late 80s. Um, so I think it is a powerful reminder that you know <laughs> there's no such thing as a as a one cause, but there's also no such thing as a last cause. Um, we struggle indefinitely against against the darkness. What's your take, Gabriel?
1: Yeah, man. I want to say so. The Russians celebrate victory tomorrow on the ninth of May, and one of my colleagues, one of our colleagues, uh, sent out a message. His his grandfather being involved in the war. And I don't know how to, you know, one of the things that I get from that video, that YouTube video you mentioned is a sense of honor. Like it, it does, it feels me, leaves me feeling very haunted and, and, and alienated from humankind. Um, at the same time as feeling a, somewhat connected to the victims, uh, which is, which is complicated because, you know, there's the individual and there's graphics of individuals and there's also just the vast numbers and it's hard to wrap your head around. There's also the sense of honor. I think to die killing Nazis, I, I just really can't think of anything more honorable than that. And I remember Winston Churchill saying that, uh, uh, no, who was it? Uh, it was anyway, some, some great writer, uh, said that his uh, oh it was boris johnson actually <laughs> right boris johnson uh in his in his in his uh in his uh sort of forward to his biography of winston churchill has something along the lines about um his grandfather being on a ship that sunk a major nazi battleship and in one day him managing to do more than johnson would ever pull off in his life uh and I and I feel that I I do feel that 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 there's just that there's just nothing I could do in my life that would that would weigh up to to fighting fascism, and and it's a good sense of perspective. You know, we're all lucky to live in in, in relatively more comfortable times. No, very much so. It,
0: the the sacrifices of those people, even though it didn't defeat, you know, the great evil of uh, totalitarian Stalinist communism. Um, it still saved millions and millions of people from horrific oppression and, in the case of people like the Slavs and the Jews, uh,
1: total extermination. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, but so on to onto the, onto the Slavs. So so my colleague said, you know, the, the tragedy was that Britain uh, won the war but had lost the peace. And he was looking at, like, how long it took the Brits to pay back their war debts and... And how their uh, empire
0: disappeared after, after the war.
1: Yeah. So... So I kind of fundamentally disagree. I think I think that uh, you know Britain actually took much shorter to pay back its war debts from World War Two than World War One, and much shorter than the Napoleonic Wars, which it took about a century to pay off its debts from that. And it's partly because it engaged in some inflation, but then Thatcher got involved and uh, and turned back down and, and got the UK on a, on a path to growth again. And I just thought about my fiance's grandfather. Who was 15 in 1945 when the Soviets won, and he'd been at school uh, close on the Soviet Western Front, uh, close to Germany, and they'd been withdrawn as soon as the Nazis started invading, and he spent a lot of his school years, those years from like 11, 12 to 15, uh, doing classes in the middle of the day and early in the morning and late at night, spending you know waking up at 4 a.m. Six hours before the sun rises to tend to horses that were being prepared to be sent to the shambles One thing that Nicholas and I have talked a lot about is how supply chain management is the kind of thing that really makes or breaks uh, Generals And one of the lesser known facts I suppose about World War two is that most of the supply chains were run by horses So the battles there were no horses but, Particularly outside. in horses the
0: German army which which we have yeah. this view of as being this ultra mechanized modern force, but it was actually one of the least modernized of the big armies of the war. Um, the Soviets yeah. had lots of American and British trucks, uh, which which helped mean that they were more mobile basically than the Germans. One. Yeah, Nation one.
1: Yeah. So so anyway, so 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 this so this man he he sort of he, he came from being a a kind of defector stable boy for the war. Um, and he was a peasant, and he grew up, and he became uh, one of the most respected academics in the soviet union and i th- I think it really is fair to say that he lived a life of honor and of comfort and achieving both of those things in the soviet union is it 's an extraordinary distinction. there are a lot of people who, had, who got comfort and they did so by dishonorable means and there are many people who were honorable and they were and they died by the millions in the gulags and you know it's it's a weird thing about academia that, that you can kind of resist the regime uh without being totally cast out if you if you're lucky and you're really good and he did it, and I just thought you know he it was his ninetieth birthday last year, and I was very privileged to be there and he kind of just described Moscow to me looking through his window over the last seventy five years that's since after the war right he was already fifteen at the time. And if you if you want to know what it looks like to win the war but lose the peace, you should talk to that man. Mm. Um, it's 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 not what happened to Britain. Britain Britain won the peace. The values that made the UK great uh, pervaded so much of the world. And they are not the UK's values, but they did a hell of a good job at at at, at fighting and dying for those values and sacrificing for them and. And and they did spread because they're good, and because people, when they're serious, and they understand opportunity costs, and they're not playing some kind of popularity game, they get that too. And they got that in Japan. They got that in South Korea. They got that. Not to
0: mention, not to mention that in Britain itself, uh, life is much better now than when they had an empire, in many many yeah. ways, um, not just material, but also in uh, sort of more esoteric things. Uh, all right, so all let's right. let's end off with uh, just a fun thing. Um, I will. I will go first, uh, so I can give you time to think of one, if you haven't got one. Um, but a couple of things. Uh, I've been trying to learn Latin on the phone app Duolingo. Uh, D-U-O-Lingo, uh, which is free, and it's got a large number of language courses, um, and that's quite fun. Check it out if you're really bored and you want to you know, try and do something with your time stuck at home. Um, and the other thing is a YouTube channel, which is may only appeal to me, <laughs> but it's called I Love Languages, and all it is is just short little clips of people reading uh, various dialects of, of of languages around the world, of various languages. So you can hear the sound of them and compare them to each other, um, and it's just kind of interesting. They've they've got extinct languages. They've got like a video for Sumerian. Or Aramaic, you know, ancient languages that have long disappeared. They've got all the different kinds of modern dialects of things. Uh, They recently did a video exploring um, New Zealand rural English dialect, which is not my favorite English dialect. (laughs) Sounds very silly, Uh, including certain slang words uh, like a chili box for a cooler. (laughs) A chili box. Chili box. Um, Gabriel, what's been keeping your spirits up recently?
1: Um I my favorite thing has been Agadmator, who is a chess commentator. And you oh, uh, so now you just showed me up
0: your intellectual.
1: <laughs> no, man, it's not intellectual. It's fun. It's it's kind of silly. Isn't it? And it's like there's like a lot of comedic like I suppose if you go to his channel on YouTube you can kind of scroll through, and if you see a title that catches your eye, uh, like Bravest Rook in the History of Chess, or Five <laughs> Worst Blunders Ever Made, or whatever, like, you, there's there's some... Uh, I don't know. I, I've, been, I've been liking that because I like sport. Uh, I've also been, I suppose, really liking the memes that I've been getting from my friends. And yeah, uh, stuff right now. And that song made by a guy who I can't remember, but the music video is by the Kiffness. Uh about Nkosana Lemini Zuma saying, Oh the thing about uh, nicotine is people are making Zol and they're licking the Zol, and then the beat comes in and and it's like it's like a Felix LeBan track, and Felix LeBan is probably my South, favorite South African DJ, where you get like I mean the thing about Nkosana Zuma is she's got a great voice, she's got great cadence. Yeah. So it works really well with the music underlined with it, and and her and her like the way she says "zol," it just it just you you're like I want to lick a rizzler paper and put some stinky tobacco in there and roll it up and smoke it. So I mean I know that's not her intention. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> it's probably the opposite of what she was hoping for. But uh, that's the wonderful thing about freedom—you can't predict. <laughs> So uh, yeah, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks for our listeners uh, sticking with us through this time of self-indulgent podcasting. Uh, we hope that you are entertained. Um, and thank you to those of, those of you who are friends of the Institute uh, who are giving a small monthly donation every month. Um, you help to keep everything we're doing operational, uh, everything from our very serious policy research to our um, you know, alternative media voice in the Daily Friend, Um, to even this podcast with its wacky zany uh, (laughs) way of looking at the world so anyway thanks very much everyone i will see you around and uh keep the flag of freedom flying yeah keep curious